You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. I am so excited to tell you about my new CBD sponsor, Roadrunner. Y'all know I love my old CBD sponsor, and I switched for one main reason. This stuff works. I've been a runner my whole life, but unfortunately, I'm also super easily injured. One of my high school friends used to call me Mr. Glass. And back in 2015, when I ran my first half marathon, I got hurt, like really hurt. And since then, I haven't been able to run more than three or four miles without serious pain. That is until I tried Roadrunner CBD's Muscle Gel. In a few short months, I'm regularly running five and a half to six miles each outing, and I'm currently training for my next half marathon. I don't want to call it a miracle cure, but it's damn near close. So check it out at my personal Roadrunner link, which is roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS. Again, that's roadrunnercbd.com slash ref slash CYS, or at the link in my show notes or on my podcast website, and use the code CYS at checkout to get 10% off on all of their awesome products. Check it out today. Today on the Choose Your Struggle podcast, it's drummer and activist Andrew Ecker. But first, Kid Mental, let me hear it. Things ain't always gonna go our way But you can always win when you choose your struggle And some battles will be yesterday But today is for a new weekend and choose your struggle And don't worry about what they say But you can always win when you choose your struggle And you can bounce back Yes, that's right Come on and listen in to Choose your struggles Choose your struggles Choose your struggles Choose your struggles Hello and welcome to another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. It's so great to be with you all. It's uh it's it's nice. I mean, I'm I'm feeling comfortable here. I'm all set up. My my space is like 80% done. I'm still waiting on my new desk to arrive and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but as as I'm recording this, I'm preparing for tonight's Rock Bottom 2 with some incredible speakers and, you know, I'm feeling good about sort of the 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 physical space. You know what I mean? Like I'm, uh, the, the last month has been very, uh, topsy turvy because of the move and to go from recording in a closet to now having a whole space and a setup. And it's just, it's just a lot nicer. And it makes me appreciate how hard I worked to create a, create this podcast and really build it in, in a space that was not conducive to that. Right. So I did my first, uh, interview uh, from this space yesterday, and it was so nice to be able to be standing in front of the green screen and and you know really presenting and really um and, and feeling comfortable be doing this work in a space that isn't a closet. You know, it just was very nice. So it's great to be with you all. As as I said, Rock Bottom Two is tonight. Uh, by the time this comes out, that will be past. You'll be hearing the recording of that in in a, in a future Monday episode. I'm trying to do more with those Monday episodes. I, I really appreciate the responses, as always. Um, this last week was was a tough one to, to to record, and you know I had some really great responses from people on that. So thank you for that. But but like I said, future ones are going to be more me, and then also more conversations with people that aren't really on brand. Like perfect example is if I had a chance to do it now, my conversation with my brother would be more of a Monday episode you know, kind of different than the regular interviews. 
and, and giving people more of an insight into me, into my work, into some of the amazing people I get to work with. Perfect example is uh, Kyle Blanks, who you all heard earlier in this season, an interview with him. We're going to do a conversation on a Monday episode. He and I have been doing some of those uh, just for fun, but also for his podcast, uh, Corner of the Clubhouse, which covers baseball and cannabis and, and sorts of other, other topics around mental health. He joined uh, the, the Shameless Podcast Network, which is growing, and, and uh, there's going to be more on that coming soon. I'll probably talk about that next week. It's not it's not all public yet, so just stay tuned for that. But um, he is going to join me for a conversation about cannabis, about his work at Roadrunner, which, uh, as you know, is now one of my partners, and uh, they are the presenting partner for Rock Bottom. And so there's going to be more of an in-depth conversation about sort of the, the uh, availability of cannabis. Uh, I actually... so. <laughs> I, I just got my cannabis card here in Pennsylvania, my medical card. That'll it's it's in the mail. I'm very excited for that. And and so just a conversation about that sort of thing. What's going on in the state of cannabis is going to be happening soon for a Monday episode. So stay tuned for that. Couple notes before we get into this week's episode. I am, as I said, I'm now comfortable in this space. And so the next thing that I'm doing, which I've been wanting to do for for months now, and I just it, it hasn't been. I haven't been comfortable enough in the space to, to really dedicate to this. As you know, I, ch- I tried to move away from Zoom early this season, or maybe that was late last season. It didn't go well. Uh, Zencaster just wasn't working for me. So I, I went back to Zoom, and I'm going to try to be moving away from that again here in the coming weeks, trying a new remote recording software. You know, As you've probably noticed, as I've definitely noticed, as a couple of you have told me you've noticed, the sound quality of my piece has rocket, just rocketed up, and that's because I've worked very hard at making this sound better. But the interviews, no matter how hard I work, and you'll hear it on this week's episode, but no matter how hard I work, it's limited by Zoom's capabilities. And it's, it doesn't, <laughs> just quite frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because my guest this week sounds incredible. And that's usually the case where the guest sounds great and I sound terrible, which you know, given if that was the option over over the guest sounding terrible and me sounding great, I would obviously like the guest to sound better. But there's no reason that we both can't sound good, especially because I have such amazing, uh, such an amazing setup here that I should be sounding better than I do on Zoom. So we're going to try some new recording software in the coming weeks. So hopefully the sound quality of the interviews will be better. Uh, this week, it's not terrible. Like I said, my guest sounds perfect. I just I go in and out for some reason. And it's not my 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 uh, hardware, my microphone and all that is great. Uh, it's just Zoom. It's just recording on Zoom. So this week's episodes with Andrew Ecker. Andrew is an incredible an advocate for indigenous population in this country. You'll hear him. Uh, he's going to describe it better than I ever could. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing him or his work. What I will say is that I really appreciated this conversation because one of the things I've been trying to do over the last year, and you know because I've talked about this before, is making up for my education. And now I went to one of the best schools in the state of Ohio, uh, one of the best private schools in the country, one of the most well-respected. And yet my education was woefully lacking when it came to topics. Basically, honesty. Like, that's how I'm going to describe this. Because, yes, I got the best in math. I got the best in, you know, uh, English and all that. But my history, my, my awareness of this country and, and its peoples was woefully lacking. And that's because that's just how we do it in this country. Our, our, our education around honesty, 
the honest history of this country is just awful. And so I've been trying to supplement that by reading a lot of things like the, the People's History of, uh, by, of the United States by Howard Zinn, which you'll hear us talk about in this, on this episode. A lot of Angela Davis's work. I've just become a huge fan of hers, and I'm like mad that I didn't get her education, you know, when when I was growing up. And we hear a lot of that from Andrew this week, basically about the the way that we talk about Indigenous peoples. You know, the the, the title of this uh, episode, as it suggests, it's very focused on the past tense. Uh, and and as he says, like that's so hurtful and so demeaning to to him and and, and his people because it's like we're still here, right? And yet you talk about us like we used to be here and all of this. And he talks about little things we can all do, like land acknowledgement, which is a thing that's starting to happen more and more. And I don't understand why we didn't do it before. You know, it's such an easy thing to do. And it just coincidentally, I was reading an article yesterday in um, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, which, by the way, if you don't read Smithsonian, in my opinion, it is probably the best uh, honest take on a lot of these topics that I, I read. And it, it's so interesting because it's like, why is the Smithsonian the one, you know, having these conversations? But they are. So it was, it was a, a story on the founding of Oklahoma, which I know you're like, who cares? And I'm with you. But what's so interesting is this, this is history that we are not taught. The state of Oklahoma used to be two different territories. It was called Indian Territory. And there was another name that was a, an, a territory that was made up of uh, freed black mostly freed black slaves, who then, of course, their descendants were the leaders and, and that kind of thing. So both of those groups petitioned for statehood. Uh, obviously, we know now, um, or if you've, if you've done any history training on this, you know that, that the way that this country has treated the, the indigenous people is we keep breaking treaties, we keep pushing them off their land. And so they finally did the thing that we always tell people to do. They went to the ballot box. They, they tried to vote. They went to, they literally, both of these groups together petitioned Teddy Roosevelt to be like, give us Give us this state, right? We're going to take two states from this. One will be, you know, from indigenous peoples. The other one will be a free black uh, state. And the, the government, as, as they normally do, said no. <laughs> They're like, nope, we're going to give it to these white settlers instead, as is the, the history of this country. And it's so interesting because we hear this story of like, oh, you know, the, 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 the indigenous people and you know, the, the Americans, they got along fine. They signed treaties and they, the, the, the people gave up their land. Or we get the story of, well, the white people took it and that's what happens. <laughs> the, in this article, as the Smithsonian lays out, the, the, the indigenous peoples and, and, and the freed black population did exactly what we tell people to do. Exactly what, you know, this myth of America is like, well, everybody has representation. If you just do things the right way. No, they did everything the right way. In fact, they one of the, the quotes from one of these leaders that, that is still handed down is that they petitioned Teddy Roosevelt to live up to the promise of this country. So they literally were like, this is what you tell people to do. We're doing it the right way. And Teddy Roosevelt was like, nah, we're going to give it to the white people. So I just think that these histories need to be told. I, like I said, I'm like mad that I didn't get taught this stuff growing up, that we were taught. You know, the, I, I was on an interview yesterday where I said this, that, you know, the, the, the word propaganda gets thrown around a lot, right? And it's got this terrible meaning. But in many cases, that's what this is. The history we are taught is flat out propaganda, and it's, it's all up America's own ass. So I love education like this from, from Andrew, where he's like, wake the hell up. <laughs> this shit is lies, you know? Enjoy this conversation with Andrew Ecker. People will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. 
That famous quote by the extraordinary Maya Angelou is exactly why I speak. It's why I tell my story and mix education around the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy with motivation, inspiration, and purpose. So when you're looking for your next keynote or breakout session speaker, reach out. Find me at my website, jshiftman.com, and I promise you, your employees, your group members, the students at your school, everybody will come away having learned something. And that's how we create change. Reach out today. Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple, please rate and review or check out the review link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm going to introduce myself here in the traditional language and then also the contemporary. So dogate Irish German a kote go e e tashli e Portland, Oregon inasha shama e Kathy Lindsay wolye shaza e del Ecker wolye. So I am Andrew Ecker, my mother Kathy Lindsay, my father Dale Ecker, my mother's mother Elba Gallegos, Apache woman from New Mexico, my father's mother Evelyn Beatty, Irish woman from Pennsylvania, my mother's father Leroy Lindsay, Apache man from Arkansas, my father's father Wayne Ecker, German Algonquin from Pennsylvania. I have a daughter Bailey, a son Peyton a beautiful beloved fiance, Monica. I was incarnated into this body in the land of the Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, although I reside here in the land of the Akmal Atom, the Pipash, the Maricopa, the Inde people here in Phoenix, Arizona. So yeah, what I do is I support people in self-identity, emotional intelligence, and relational spirituality. That is a part of um, who I am. And you know, my story kind of began, um, yeah, it, I mean, some people say that they're born with a silver spoon in their mouth. You know, for me, I was born with a drug spoon in my mouth. <laughs> uh, both my parents died of drug-related causes. Mom from a cocaine overdose. Father from cirrhosis of liver caused by hepatitis C. Uh, growing up in that environment, Jay, you could imagine, I was uh, used to shoplift, Primarily, that was what my parents' hustle was. Uh, on the street, people that are addicted to drugs, they have a number of different hustles. Some of them are, you know, uh, con people. Some of them prey on their own family. You know, some of them sell drugs. Uh, some people prostitute and my family or and then do, you know, violent acts of robbery and things like that. My parents were a very unique group of uh, habitual uh, criminals that utilized shoplifting as a way of supplying for their habits. Uh, my mom's cocaine habit, uh, heroin habit, my dad's cocaine, heroin habit. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in an environment where there was definitely a lot of organized crime. Um, you know, every day, <clears throat> basically my parents would go out and, and shoplift and we're talking, you know, we're not talking about taking a pack of gum from the convenience store. We're talking about like groups of people in disguises going into stores and shoplifting thousands of dollars a day. Uh, you know, my parents, when I was a kid, my dad told me, he said, you know, it's really easy to get out of the stores with merchandise. He said the most difficult part of doing this is getting in the store, you know, and you have to disguise yourself basically to get in the store so that you're not recognized 
by the people. So they would wear costuming, you know, go to the Goodwill and get uh, um, security guard outfits, you know, uh, plumber outfits. I mean, just different kinds of, of kind of, uh, yeah, um, you know, even like one of my family members worked at the DMV and they had a DMV uh, you know, uh, work attire, I guess. Uh, and yeah, she would use this to kind of get out there and, and not get caught going in the stores, you know, be less, uh, yeah, you're not looked at as just a drug addict, um, you know, coming into shoplift. So yeah, that was, uh, growing up, you know, being used to shoplift, um, subsequently, you know, I was left at drug houses, uh, suffered from post-traumatic stress. I watched my mom get beat up by the police in front of me, you know, police brutality. And um, yeah, that was just a way of life, you know, violence, uh, those kind of things. I grew up with a, a huge fear of the police uh, in my heart. You know, my mom would be driving down the road. She would yell in the back, get down kids. You know, they're going to take you from us if you get caught and if we get pulled over or anything like that. Of course, she was probably, you know, carrying drugs and guns and who knows what else but it was always directed at us you know as kids like you know we're the issue why <laughs> we're going to be taken because we're playing in the back seat you know and not in our seat belts so what was that like seeing that all happen in front of you yeah it was uh definitely a colorful uh life you know there was a lot of comedy there was a lot of tragedy it was uh really intense you know growing up in that environment and uh yeah, you know, it's Reagan era war on drugs. Um, also, the cuts in mental health. Uh, these were things that it seems like our country forgets sometimes when they go down the direction of certain political regimes. Uh, we're still many of our communities still uh, dealing with those Reagan uh, cuts in, in funding for substance abuse and mental health, and also the over policing of our neighborhoods you know, the tactics of, you know, drug raids. I mean, this is like something that needs to end today. Uh, going into a person's house and, you know, even if it's cocaine, methamphetamine or heroin or any of these things, you know, I mean, we look at these substances as like, oh, these are horrible, right? But yet uh, we're seeing constant bombardment on media and even social media of anxiety drugs, of depression drugs, all of these drugs. And it's like, yeah, the person on the street that doesn't have access to medical care, they're going to self-medicate. They're going to try to find a way out of their anxiety, their depression. And oftentimes it's, you know, the drug dealer on the corner. And this leads to substance abuse. It, uh, you know, no one starts off wanting to be a junkie, uh, but it ends up that way. And subsequently, that was a part of that Reagan era. There was a lack of ability for people, low-income people, to get help for mental health issues. And it led to mass, you know, substance abuse issues, which led to the cocaine epidemic, which led to the gang epidemic, which led to, you know, over-policing, police brutality, and, you know, the issues of what we're seeing with George Floyd, what we're seeing with Derek Kavanaugh, what we're seeing in this issue, and also the, the issues that are just coming forward now because people have cell phones. You know, this is the only difference in this world, and I grew up in that environment. I grew up, you know, seeing the way that my Native American side of my family was dealt with, my brown side, 
uh, was dealt with and my white side was dealt with, you know, there's a total discrepancy in that. I have both parents are using drugs. One of them is European American. One of them is Native American. And there is definitely a difference in the way that the police responded to my mom and the way the police responded to my dad. You know, my mom gets the, the door busted open in the middle of the night, guns drawn on all of us, my sister, me, my grandma, you know, all of us are basically, you know, being pointed, guns are being pointed at us. And my dad, you know, it's like they just knock on the door and, you know, are kind and polite. Uh, you know, this idea of drug raids, which I was saying needs to end, it's just so detrimental to children. You know, I, I had grew up with that post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and still have a relationship to that in my life. You know, a heightened state of uh, reality. Basically, it feels like I'm jumped out of my body uh, at times. And I really need to practice my breath, practice my grounding, you know, the wellness practices that I have in my life now. Um, but this all could have been, you know, it, it never should have happened to a seven-year-old, six-year-old kid. Uh, the police busting in and raiding a person, I mean, literally military raid, you know, smoke grenades, all of this stuff, over-policed for $100 worth of cocaine, $200 worth of cocaine. You know, this is ridiculous, America. This is something that needs to end. It's scary for the people in the neighborhood, let alone the children of these individuals. Um, you know, half the time, you know, where there's so many examples, I don't know if half the time is the right statistic, but there are many examples of the police go raiding wrong addresses, raiding, you know, people that are that have no criminal activity at all in their home, you know, even, you know, walking in on people, the, the wrong home. I mean, recently we had a, a police officer shoot someone in their wrong home. You know, they, they thought they were coming in their own house. So I just feel like there's a lot there to explore uh, in this conversation. So what kind of education around this issue did you get outside the home when you were a kid? You know, one of the things that I went through as a kid was the dare program and i don't know if anybody this you know there's probably still communities out there that have the dare program going on i recently did a, a search just to see if that's still going and it's actually still being funded by the united states i i just don't get it jay i just don't get it but you know for those of you that don't know the dare program the united states government thought that it would be a good idea to send armed police okay <laughs> literally armed police officers into underserved high drug neighborhoods and talk to the children of parents that are using substances. And, uh, you know, during my time as a kid, my mom was really, uh, she was afraid because we were seeing on the news, you know, that these police officers were interrogating children, they were getting them to turn their parents in for drug violations for even something as simple as smoking marijuana. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it was extremely criminalized just to smoke marijuana. So when the police officers, you know, were going to come into my school, my mom told me, if you t say anything to them that we smoke marijuana, uh, because that was the only substance that my parents used around me visually, you know, uh, they all went into the, you know, the bedroom and locked the door when they were, you know, using cocaine and heroin until you, I was a teenager. And then it was more out in the open. 
but yeah, they openly smoke marijuana and, you know, they, my mom was so afraid that this was going to be uh, a reason for a, a police raid for them to take us from, uh, take, you know, me and my sister from her, destroy our family basically. So she told me if they ask you anything about us, you can't say anything. Uh, so when the dare cops came into my school, you know, my heart was pounding, uh, my hands were sweaty. I even, you know, just telling the story, I'm like back in that childhood body. Um, and they didn't interrogate me, but they said something to me that was really significant and would mold the way that I began to live. And that was, if you have one drug addict parent, you're 50% more likely to become a drug addict. Uh, and they're telling this to a child, you know, I'm, I'm a child, I'm in elementary school and I wasn't a mathematician or, you know, a, a great uh, physicist, but I definitely knew what 50 and 50 was, that was a hundred. So I literally remember feeling this kind of dark cloud of self-identity fall on me. And that helped fortify my behaviors as uh, a young person. Uh, it gave me a reason to get involved in drugs, to get involved in the gangs, to get involved in all of the different behaviors that I was seeing at home. Um, and it really led me down a path of destruction that I really you know, didn't confront until I was in uh, maximum security federal detention facility in Florence, Arizona, uh, you know, awaiting trial. You ended up struggling with a lot of these things yourself, as, as you just alluded to, and, and you unfortunately ended up in, in jail. Can you talk a little more about, you know, that part of your story? What what got you um, you know, what, what your own personal struggle was like and how you ended up in that situation? No, oh, that's a really great question, uh, especially with the climate that we're faced with. So policing started for me as a youth. I, I started getting alcohol uh, tickets. You know, I'd get we get busted at some kind of party. Next thing you know, I'm going to alcohol diversion class. I'm going to I think in one summer I had, I think, eight alcohol diversion tickets um, just because, you know, my neighborhood, this was the Clinton era by this time. Uh, and that was another over-policing, <clears throat> you know, a police state. So now I'm living in, I'm no longer living in Portland, Oregon, my place of my birth. I'm now living in a vario in, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Well, outside Phoenix in, in a little place called Peoria and growing up in this vario environment. Uh, my dad had a gang name. They called him Robin Hood. Uh, you know, my aunt was involved in, uh, criminal activity, uh, basically, we were kind of, you know, a part of that culture, the Vadio culture, my family. So uh, it was very easy for me to get involved um, in, in the criminal lifestyle, uh, getting those alcohol diversion classes, getting caught, you know, substance abuse, all of those things. You would think that the United States government or the local government would start to see a pattern and really do an intervention. But that didn't happen until I graduated uh, to prison. So, you know, with the prison, the police system, you have generally like a probation, you have jail, uh, and then eventually you go to prison. I was, excuse me, sent to state and federal prison, uh, which the federal prison time that I did, uh, I was sent for um, distrib oh, sorry, uh, conspiracy with the intent to distribute psilocybin and LSD. Uh, so I was basically selling mushrooms and LSD at raves. 
um, and, you know, concert venues, those kind of things. There was a sting that was done after an episode of Dateline. Um, Dateline was a big national news media um, program at the time, and they came in and they exposed the Arizona rave scene. And uh, this was basically a, a bunch of kids, you know, uh, dancing and listening to high energy, uh, you know, to techno and to trance and uh, this kind of house music. Um, you know, back then it was like this idea of plur, which was uh, peace, love, uh, unity and respect. Uh, it was definitely a culture for me in a sense. I really coming out of, you know, the home that I was in, the drugs, the violence, the gangs, all of that, uh, the rave scene gave me an outlet. Uh, it gave me a place where I could connect to people that was safe. Uh, also in that time, I got connected to a drum circle and I went to a drum circle and, and my life was changed. You know, I was like, wow, what is this? This is something really powerful. And I uh, started to experience culture in these undergrounds. And uh, yeah, I made a name for myself out there selling LSD and mushrooms, you know, so much so that I would walk into a, a, a rave and, you know, they would give me a DJs would give me a shout out. You know, it was uh, it was, uh, you know, a big thing for me at the time. You know, it really meant something. So I ended up getting busted and sent to state prison first on a marijuana uh, probation violation. And when I went to state prison, it was like family reunion. You know, all my friends, homies from the neighborhood were there. It was like, gosh, I got taken care of. I, I lived in an honored part of the dorm where there was less guys and everything. Uh, but that really wasn't what I feel, you know, the universe had, in, you know, planned for me. Um, after that, my detainer came up for the feds, meaning that I had this other charge. They sent me to a maximum security federal detention facility, which was probably one of the best experiences because now I'm isolated. I'm away from, you know, the homies basically. And I'm in a federal system where nobody knows me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just a very small fish in a big pond, you know, of, I mean, we're talking like cartel members and serious, you know, criminals uh, are involved, involved in this federal system. But the difference, Jay, in the federal system and the state system is funding primarily. So the way the state system works is they're funded by the feds. And they're funded, they're funded on recidivism. So the prisons only get paid if they keep people in the prison. The way the federal system is looked at is there is more opportunity to get access to treatment. And I was given a 500-hour drug rehabilitation program. And, it, you know, it was cognitive therapy, group therapy. It was really an amazing opportunity. It was the first time in my life that I felt safe enough to read a book you know, um, and I had a spiritual transformation in that institution. I started doing yoga, started doing um, meditation, prayer, fasting, uh, really got into reading the Bible, um, you know, just changed, changed my life completely and started me on a path of community involvement and engagement. So that is a wonderful pause point because that's that's obviously what we're headed towards to talk about before we get to all that though i would love for you to take a chance and shout out where people can follow you where they can find you online anything you want them to know sweet so the best way for me 
uh, to get connected with me is through my website, thesacred7.com, and you can get a free copy of my book there. Um, the book that I wrote is on ceremonial introduction. I think everybody needs to know how to introduce themselves from something outside of a behavior model. And, you know, our kind of contemporary culture installs this in us, right? What are you going to be when you grow up? You know, uh, like we're nothing already, you know, and uh, indigenous communities, earth-based communities around the world knew that formulating self-identity at a young age would lead to, uh, you know, productive behaviors. If you give someone a foundation of self-identity, that's going to help them, you know, live in accordance with the community standards, live in accordance with the way that people interact with one another. So that's what the Sacred Seven is about. It's about transforming the way you view yourself, you know, your relational spirituality and emotional intelligence. So that's the best way. You can sign up for my email list there, basically. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's just Andrew Ecker. Um, also, you know, I have utilized not only uh, self-identity as a way of transforming lives, but also the drum. And I'm a drum circle facilitator. Uh, that moment that I got connected with the drums back, you know, way back in 1995, uh, totally changed my life. And uh, now, you know, we facilitate professionally in hospitals, in drug treatment facilities, uh, worked a lot with Native Americans. In fact, um, all different types of tribes and Native American nonprofits, anywhere from one to five uh, drum circles a day we're facilitating. And actually, doors are starting to open up again, which is super exciting. Y'all know I love to read, and almost every episode of this podcast includes a recommendation to check out an awesome book. From Adi Jaffe's Abstinence Myth to Johan Ari's Chasing the Scream, I'm constantly looking for new books to learn from and enjoy. That's why I'm super excited to partner with Bookshop. Bookshop is a wonderful website that helps you find all your favorite books and support your local neighborhood bookstore in the process. I've bought everything from textbooks to Star Wars novels on Bookshop, and I've supported my local store with each transaction. Best of all, my Bookshop link will allow you to see all the books I've mentioned on the show right in one spot. So check out Bookshop today using the link in my show notes or go to bookshop.org shop CYS and you'll find all the awesome books you want and support the podcast in the process. Check it out today. Subscribe to my Patreon for behind-the-scenes looks at the podcast, sneak peeks, and bonus data. You'll also get a discount on Choose Your Struggle merch. Find it at patreon.com slash chooseyourstruggle. You have this, this sort of transformative period, and you get back in touch with your indigenous roots, right? That was a big piece of, of you know, when you were telling me your story that I think was so captivating to me, was that you, you know, it, it sounded like it wasn't that you weren't in touch with them. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but that you sort of recognize the beauty of it more. Is that a better way to say that? Oh my gosh, Jay. It's like, yeah, it's perfect. Uh, I grew up, you know, knowing I was Indian from behind a bottle of whiskey. You know, I came home from school one day. I wasn't, I didn't grow up on a reservation. In fact, our people were Apaches from uh, Texas and my family goes back to the Madera Valley of Texas. So we're Spanish speaking Native Americans. Um, and for us, right, we don't have a homeland. We don't have a reservation. 
Um, and there are many tribes that are like this. There are, uh, you know, over 500 recognized tribes in, in America. And there's also another 300 unrecognized tribes in the United States. Uh, so for me, right, coming home from school one day, asking my grandpa, kids are asking me, what am I? You know, I don't look like them. <laughs> my grandpa, I mean, this is in Portland, Oregon, one of the whitest cities in America. And uh, my grandpa says to me, well, you're a renegade Apache, you know, and this is already three o'clock in the afternoon. So he's pretty drunk by then. And uh, I exactly didn't know. I didn't know what it meant to be Native American. I didn't understand what it meant to be Apache. I'm still kind of learning ab about that part of myself, actually. And uh, what I would say is decolonizing my mind. You know, that's why I introduce myself in my traditional language. That's why I participate in ceremony. That's why I show up the way that I do in this world. And it is, for me, a practice. It's a practice of my spirituality to be an indigenous person. It's a practice of resistance. You know, I go to the national forest, uh, there's a sign in front of me that says voices of the past, literally. And it has a picture of some Neanderthal Native American, you know, person that looks more like a stick figure than a human being. There's no shading on this person, you know. I know that it was a white guy that drew this because natives are artistic. <laughs> and it says literally that the, the language, my ancestral language is no longer spoke in this area. You know, like this is how the institution of this government silently in a certain sense but for those of us that are in tune, overtly destroys our ancestral connection to this land. You know, for me, the dream is, is that I'll drive into, you know, L.A. one day and it'll say, welcome to Los Angeles, the ancestral lands of the Tongva. You'll drive into Phoenix and it'll say, welcome to Phoenix, Arizona, the ancestral lands of the Akma Atum, the Peeposh, the Maricopa Inde people. Why is it that every American city... If we really want to reconcile ourselves, if we really want to say that we're a country that cares about indigenous people, that cares about that black lives matter, that red lives matter, that brown lives matter, that yellow lives matter, okay, the colors of the rainbow. If, if we really want to be a culture like that, then why not say that? Why not just have a sign that says, welcome to the ancestral lands, the acknowledgement, in Canada, all the public officials, all of the uh, ministers, all of the people that are involved in the government in Canada, before they start a conversation, they recognize the ancestral lands that they're on. This is a two-second, three-second conversation. It doesn't take that much, but yet we're not educated. We don't know. We're not taught these things in school. You know, my education about being Native American in the school that I was at was it was an East Coast thing that was before you know, it was like something that was the past history and it was pilgrims. I remember dressing up with the little feather in my hair and shaking a, a thing of, of cream until it turned into butter. That was literally our our education as a as a young person on what it meant to be Native American. You know, these ideas, these concepts, you know, they're just so uh, it's so important for us to get the truth out there you know, and to help people understand very simplistic ways that they can begin to incorporate the ideas of integrated community into their life. And an introduction in saying, hey, hi, we're coming to you from the ancestral lands of, you know, you're at a PTA meeting, you're at a 12-step program, you're at, you know, all these different meetings. Why not just do an acknowledgement of the land you're on?
That is such a great point. And I, and I want to I want to ask you to double down on that by saying we're in this period now where we're finally starting to recognize things like cultural appropriation, right? If you see a white person doing something that is, uh, you know, distinctly from from black culture, you're going to get called out on it if you don't, you know, recognize, right? And yet there is nothing but silence when it comes to communities like yours, right? There is so much that comes from indigenous culture that we see every single day and no one ever pauses to say, hey, you know, we can thank whatever community for this. Oh, yeah, it's it's an important part of, of us really coming back to, uh, you know, the dream of, I think, what we hold as American people. This is a melting pot. You know, the Europeans are not going away. <laughs> it's not like the Europeans are going to leave here, you know, or our brothers from the Middle East or our brothers from Africa or sisters from Africa or sisters from the Middle East or the Asian community. No one is leaving here. You know, all I feel that uh, indigenous people of this land are yearning for is a small little bit of recognition. You know, we're probably the most humble out of all the groups, the diverse groups in this nation. But yet it's like, it's so important, right? It's, it takes a conscious connection as individuals. You know, we look at in my lifetime, Jay, I have seen the LGBTQ community recognized with, you know, marriage licenses. I have seen the African-American community recognized. I have seen the dreamers, the immigrant community recognized. But yet my community is unrecognized. We are just like, you know, the, during CNN, during the election, they put white America, black America, when, you know, who's voting for Trump, who's voting for Biden, and then, you know, Asian Americans, and then they had Hispanics, and then they had something else. Literally, they had something else. That's what they called us, something else. And in Arizona, which turned blue, the reason that Arizona turned blue, people, is because of the Navajo Nation, because of the indigenous vote here. You know, the Navajo Nation is one is the largest uh, reservation in the United States. And they vote in a way that brings about these transformations in our government. So if you call yourself a progressive, if you call yourself a liberal, if you call yourself a conscious woke person and you're not recognizing the land that you're on, you know, I know you're, you're, you know, maybe using all the great ways of, of, you know, identifying, you know, yourself, but please, you know, do something conscious for our indigenous community. I mean, it's really simple. So how a two-part question here, right? So the first part is, you know, last year I read The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, which is a uh, sort of uh, challenges the narrative of the founding of the U.S. and really exposes how much or how horrible, you know, Columbus and all that sort of stuff was, right? So I, how much, in your opinion, the first part of this question is, how much, in your opinion, do you think it is because to actually recognize communities like yours would mean admitting all of these things that the U.S. tries to hide. So that's part number one. Part two is you are very clearly passionate about this in a way that is very, uh, it, 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 very endearing, very vulnerable, and 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 induces a lot of empathy. Right. So how can you know? I, I don't want it, it's it shouldn't be on you as an ambassador of the community. How can people in 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 our positions 
other than to simply recognize it ourselves, how can we be your ally in, in, as an ambassador and help challenge these ideas and, and, and make things right? So I really believe that, you know, one of the very simple ways, well, let me say this, first of all. So yes, with the idea of Columbus, the idea of colonization, you know, and the diversity of colonization that has happened in this country, you have a huge amount of Spanish speaking Native Americans on the whole West Coast of this country. You have French speaking Native Americans in Louisiana. There are people of indigenous identity that have been assimilated into this country in a very diverse way. There are so many different diverse groups that are really under the radar of, uh, you know, the contemporary culture that in the acknowledgement of the lands that you are on, you can begin to identify with that process of really creating a vehicle for transformation. The genocide has never been recognized. The continued genocide has never been recognized. When I was talking about the National Forest and Voices of the Past, this is the power of the pen. You know, this is, you know, they if they can't kill you with the sword, they kill you with the pen. And this is the reality of what we need to do. So if you see a sign, you know, ally out there in a national forest that utilizes the language of was, were, or has been in, in you know, the context of Native American populations, I mean, if you want to get to the point of uh, demonstrating, you know, do it. I mean, if you want to get to the point of being a voice, write to the National Forest System, you know, the Forest Service, write to them. I have. I've reached out to Umqua National Forest and have not even got an email back. I went on their Facebook page and asked them, are you doing anything about this sign? You know, what? what this is horrible for little Native American children you know, to look at when I was there and I seen that sign, there was a guy that was there from another tribe. And I said, do you see this shit? I said, what the fuck is this? And he goes, he goes over to it. He was flying a drone, taking pictures of this uh, waterfall. And he was like, I go, this just makes me want to burn this shit. And he goes, oh, we can do that. You know, like literally, but I didn't, you know, instead I stood in front of it and I, I, you know, did a YouTube video of me introducing myself to the sign in an act of defiance. These things need to be changed. You know, Dead Indian Road, there's a, a road in Oregon called Dead Indian Road. You know, uh, there's all kinds of ways that we can begin to transform our culture and also recognize the atrocities of the contemporary government. What about the Afghanistan war? You know, the idea that we're getting hit all over the media right now because, you know, thankfully Biden is ending, you know, bringing the troops out of Afghanistan. And the way that the media recognizes it is this. They say the longest lasting war in American history. Is it really the longest lasting war in American history? You can say it's the longest lasting foreign war. But if, if you say it's the longest lasting war, you're lying to us. Because the longest lasting war in American history is the American Indian War. The American Indian War lasted for 200 years. And when you say these things, these little things that are uneducated in the contemporary culture, what you're doing is you're bypassing the reality. You are bypassing the reality of what we have gone through as indigenous people in this land. And... What a great opportunity for a journalist to say, 
you know, this is the second longest lasting war in American history. The first, the longest lasting war is, of course, the American Indian War, in which this country, you know, uh, genocide uh, indigenous people. And then go to your story on Afghanistan, right? <laughs> you know, why not do that? Why not give that little bit of like, hey, we're going to recognize something here. But instead, we're lied to. You know, we're lied to. And we're, we're taught to not even understand that. This is the voice of media. Everywhere you go, they're saying this. And every time I listen to that, Jay, every time my, you know, people listen to this, they they understand that that they're being lied to, you know, that they're being taught a mis, you know, uh, yeah, misinformation. So a couple of things. Number one is that you and I could go for, I would, I would love to do a longer uh, option than we have today. Cause this is for a podcast uh, on all of this, because <laughs> you're, you're, you're speaking so many things that y- we are not taught. And, and I do believe a lot of that is intentional. So I, I want to say that first and, and, and try to follow that up with saying that you, I will definitely have you back for another um piece of my work, whether it's a, a storytelling or whatever, because I think there's a lot you can educate us on. But I am a, a cognizant of both time and the fact that we haven't really talked about your work much. So let's, before we get to the closing questions, spend five minutes telling us more about your literal day-to-day work and how people can support what you do. Oh, uh, thank you. So we primarily, I'd like to say that, you know, our family my community um, is really about utilizing the ancient technologies to bring about transformation. In self-identity, that's the process of ceremonial introduction. I help people create a ceremonial introduction in which they recognize the ancestral lands that they're on, they recognize the ancestral lands that they have been birthed from, and they connect to their identity beyond behavior. Hi, my name is Andrew. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I'm, you know, I'm a drummer. This is what our contemporary culture conditions us to view ourselves in. You know, it's it's brought to us from the very moment we're children and somebody says, what are you going to be when you grow up? So I help people connect in that way. I also facilitate drum circles and me and my fiance go into hospitals every day, memory care, skilled nursing, um, we go into cancer facilities, drug rehabilitation facilities, and we facilitate a healing experience that's not, um, you know, one culture. I'm not teaching West African drumming. I'm not teaching Middle Eastern drumming, Native American drumming. Instead, we're creating a contemporary vehicle for people to connect through music, which is another ancient technology. In fact, many people say that drumming, singing, and dancing is the oldest mind-body wellness activity. Before Tai Chi, Qigong, you know, even the practice of, you know, Kundalini yoga, all these different forms of mind, body, wellness, we were drumming, singing and dancing together. I feel like this is a vehicle that can heal and transform our culture. Last week, Jay, we facilitated a drum circle here in our local community. So we do the hospital work and then we also do a free drum circle, donation based drum circle here on Sundays. It's kind of drum church. I'm looking around. There's a man in a wheelchair, Jay. There's, and he brought his family, right? There's elders, you know, 70 year old elders. There was one, the couple there that were 87, you know, that were playing music together, plus little children. There's African American people, Asian American people, Spanish speaking people from South and uh, Mexico. 
Native Americans. Like, this is the dream, Jay, that we're all interacting in a positive way. You know, it's a vehicle that I feel our country needs. Our nonprofit organization is going to be, well, we're launching a tour. We're beginning at the Tico Time RV Resort for the Tico Time Reggae Festival. And we're calling it Heal the Heartbeat of America. And we're going to be bringing drum circles to communities. We bring the drums. We have 150 instruments. We have benches. We have a PA system. And right now we are asking for donations to help us purchase a solar generator. We want this experience to be completely off the grid. We want it to be something that is, is you know, connecting us back to this idea of living in harmony with the heartbeat of Mother Earth, with uh, the technology that we have today. It is such a beautiful metaphor, Jay. It's like, man, I could just, I get the goosebumps thinking about it. I get so excited and we do need people to partner with us uh, to help us make that happen. So there's a lot going on. You know, I know that it's a long conversation for the community involvement that we're doing. Last year, well, 2019, 2020 was kind of a wash, but 2019, we facilitated 587 wellness-based events. And you might be thinking, how the heck did you do that? Well, it's one to five a day. You know, we go sometimes into a hospital where you got uh, behaviors, you got memory care, you got skilled nursing, you got assisted living, independent living, you know, all of these uh, retirees, elders. And we might do four sessions in one hospital. It's just, you know, going out there and changing the world through these ancient technologies, reminding us all that we are indigenous to this planet. When you look at the mountain and you see your brother, your sister, when you look at the ocean and you see your mom, you are much likely to want to destroy her. And the heartbeat of the drum is a vehicle of getting back to the earth. It's very powerful. So that is a perfect opportunity to, again, before we go to the final question, shout out where people can follow you if they want to support that initiative, all of that. So, yeah, connect with us uh, through the Sacred 7 or DrummingSounds.com. That's really the easiest way. The Sacred 7, all spelled out, .com or DrummingSounds.com. You can see some video on the work that we do with cancer patients there. Um, You can get connected with us. You know, any kind of support, financial support, send me an email and, uh, you know, we'll get connected. You can also reach me at Andrew Ecker four on Venmo. (laughs) I love it. And I will put I will put both of those websites in in the show notes. Um, but it, like I said, you and I could do this for a long time, but I'm conscious yeah. of, of time and we, I will have you back for something I promise. But before we close, I do have two final questions that I always okay. ask. Number one is what self-care habits work for Andrew Ecker? Drumming, you know, drumming is that vehicle that really transforms my life. For me, being a kid growing up with post-traumatic stress and growing up with major anxiety issues so badly that I would go to the bathroom on myself as a kid, uh, there were so many things out of control. And what I found is that when you hit the drum, it makes a sound. Okay, you know, that is a level of control that's beautiful. It's something that is constructive. It's something that is engaging and it's very meditative. So if I play a rhythm pattern, um, you know, if it's boom, boom, tap and I play that over and over again, all I'm thinking about is boom, boom, tap. You know, that's it. And I'm clearing my mind of the frustrations, the anxiety, um, you know, I'm helping my mental health. So that's my number one self-care. 
Wonderful. That's a so I I am a, a, a I grew up drumming uh, and and also like you did a lot of festivals and stuff like that. But I I, I miss it. So I I got to get back into that. Heck yeah. I, the dream of the 90s, Jay. Come on, dude. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, we've now spent the last hour learning about how you're amazing. We should all be following you and supporting your work. But this is your opportunity to shout out. What are you reading? Who are you listening to? Who do we all need to go check out? Oh, wow. So, uh, you know... I'm really a marketing guy, like underneath all this spirituality. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy, you know, it's going to sound really kind of crazy, but I listen to, uh, you know, Lewis Howes. I listen to, uh, gosh, Gary V. Uh, you know, I, I really like Ear Hustle is one of my favorite podcasts right now. Uh, Ear Hustle is put out by uh, San Quentin Prison, and it gives a look at, um, gosh, you know, institutional life that many people will never understand. And it's very nostalgic for me as a person who was incarcerated. Uh, you know, Nigel and, uh, oh, gosh, yeah, it's just a really, really amazing uh, podcast. So, yeah, check that out. Ear Hustle is really good. I also, you know, love Snap Judgment. <laughs> love, I love Snap Judgment. Yeah, I was literally talking to someone about Snap Judgment yesterday. That is a great podcast for storytelling that I don't think enough people know about. Yeah. Did you listen to Suave, by the way? Did you listen to that? Uh, I haven't, no. Oh my gosh, it's a mini series and it's about the children during the uh, Reagan era, Clinton era that got life in prison, you know, some of them 15, 14 years old, you know, when the Clintons were talking about super predators, uh, these guys were getting locked up as children in life in prison. And it's the story of one of the guys uh, and how he comes out of prison. Oh, amazing. Goosebumps and tears through that one. You I, know, I, uh, I'm literally, my listeners, you can't see this, but I'm literally pulling it up right now because this is right up my alley. Thank you. for that Oh, dude, you're going to, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. It's really good. Andrew, thank you so much for this. I, I really appreciate the, this learning opportunity and all the work you're doing. And I'm sure my listeners will love this as well. Thank you, Jay. Find me on social media. Check the link in the show notes or search for me, Jay Schiffman, on YouTube and LinkedIn. And choose your struggle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. It is, um, you know, it, it, it was a really interesting conversation with Andrew, and, and, and I really, I just hope that, that all of you sort of picked up on the, the little things that we unintentionally do that is incredibly harmful, you know, the, 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 the speaking in past tense is a thing that we don't even think about, you know? It doesn't even occur to us. And then we're like, oh, right. That makes it sound like, you know, we, we talk about them like we talk about woolly mammoths, right? We talk about indigenous people in this country like they're extinct. And that is just ridiculous. It, it makes it, it's like a mental gymnastics exercise where we know that they're still there and that they're, they're you know, ignored by this country. And yet we kind of um, still buy into that myth that, that they're gone. It's, it's ridiculous. So, a little out of order this week, but that's your good egg, is to do a little something to help the indigenous population in this country, whether it's being aware of your own buying into that, like talking in past tense, 
or you know, like like Andrew said, when he saw a sign in a in a in a park that 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 put it in past tense, reporting that um, land acknowledgement is as he said it. I mean, what I think what's so sad is that like so little is being done that even little things like that can be helpful. So do something little to to acknowledge and to promote the indigenous people in this country. We're going to use another new card pack this week, the third of the, the new ones that I've gotten. Uh, you hear me rustling with those. Uh, this card pack is called Just One Thing Card Pack. It was created by Rick Hansen, a doctor and an author. And, and, and it's called, uh, or it's for 52 Practices for More Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. So here is your card for this week. Enjoy four kinds of peace. Ooh, this will be good. When you're at peace, when you're engaged with life while also feeling relatively relaxed, calm, and safe, you're protected from stress, your immune system grows stronger, and you become more resilient, your outlook brightens, and you see more opportunities. So try each of these four kinds of peace. Peace of ease. Look out a window and feel calmer. Shift in your chair and find a more comfortable position. Inhale and be at ease with about enough air to breathe. That's good. Peace of tranquility. Be aware of deep quiet in your mind and body. With no sense of anything missing, anything wrong. Recognize that inner freedom each day when you wake up before your mind kicks into gear. Peace of awareness. Even when upsetting thoughts and feelings whirl through your mind, awareness itself is stable and undisturbed. Try to be aware of the peaceful, reliable spaciousness of awareness. And finally, peace of what's unchanging. Two plus two will always equal four. Recognize that the part of everything which your life is always changing, but that everything it's a part of is not. Okay, that, little, that last one was a little hard to say, but that's okay. These are great. Um, so as you know, I put out that, that mindfulness uh, course on Listenable, which props to Listenable, by the way. They uh, really took that and ran with it. They, they let me know it was one of their top courses when it first came out. And so they promoted it uh, in an email. They highlighted it in an email that went to all their, their email list uh, on social media. Really thank you to Listenable for that. But I think that what's so great about this car is it really highlights sort of different forms of mindfulness, right? You know, the peace of ease of just being aware of, of the calmness of, and being comfortable, right? The peace of tranquility, um, you know, that's, that is the traditional mindfulness, right? Being aware that, that you're the inner freedom of your mind, uh, peace of awareness, which is, again, sort of the freedom to think, the, 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 the gift that is awareness. And finally, the peace of what's unchanging, which I think for me is the hardest one because as a guy with uh, OCD, you know, this moving really made me uncomfortable when things are not uh, in their proper place. I feel uh, it's harder for me to feel at ease. And yet, as this card says, that's focusing on the, you know, the 20% that's changing and not the 80% that's staying the same. So really a wonderful card. I hope you put that into practice this week. But above all else, as always, be vulnerable, show your empathy, Spread your love and choose your struggle.